This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Have you been working hard to dominate your surgical residency? Do you want to help others to dominate no matter what stage of training they're in? Hi to all of our BTK listeners. My name is Nina Clark, general surgery resident at the University of Washington. And I'm Jessica Millar, general surgery resident at the University of Michigan. We both have had the privilege of working as behind the knife education fellows for the past year, and we're excited to continue growing our team. Are you a surgical resident interested and enthusiastic about surgical education? BTK is offering a two-year surgical education fellowship starting July 1st, 2023 and ending June 30th, 2025. Only residents who are starting a two-year block of professional development time away from full-time clinical activity will be considered, and you have to ensure that your institution and mentor approve of this fellowship. Fellows will be deeply involved in the BTK activities. The two of us have worked on an absite revamp, not tying video series, our new trauma video atlas, and a comprehensive student resource, just to start. While this is an unpaid internship, you'll have access to the, all the behind-the-knife resources, like illustrators, editors, recording and video equipment, and more to help make high-quality surgical education content. Applications are due April 16th, and you can find the link to the application in our show notes or on our Twitter page at Behind the Knife. You can also contact us at hello at behindthenife.org with any questions. We've had a great time so far this year, and there's only more to come. We hope you'll consider joining us. Hey, everyone. The Miami Trauma Team is back for another episode of Clinical Challenges in Trauma Surgery. Our team consists of me, Eva Rechiga, a PGY4, Yuri Neiman, who is now an attending in Tel Aviv Medical Center in Israel, but was previously a trauma fellow here at University of Miami, and Rishi Rattan, our attending advisor, who is now at Legacy Emanuel in Portland, Oregon. Today, we will be discussing a topic that is ever-changing and confusing in renal trauma. First off, upwards of 95% of injuries to the kidney are managed non-operatively, and not all urine leaks equal a trip to the operating room. This is a topic that's always in flux, and there is even a new EAST practice management guideline that was just published on their management. But today, we'll hopefully shed some light on the management of these injuries, and we'll go over what you need to know for when your patient rolls into the trauma bay. We'll be using the EAST practice management guideline that was actually just published now in 2023, as well as the American Neurological Association guidelines, which are from 2020, in addition to the World Journal of Emergency Surgery AAST guidelines, and those are from 2019. Those are basically going to be our resources, and this will be included in the show notes. So let's get to it. Okay, Yuri, you're back in Miami. It's spring break, obviously. And now you've been called to the trauma bay to evaluate a 27-year-old male who was in a jet ski collision. Another jet ski hit him from the left side going about 30 miles an hour, and he collided with its handlebars. There was no loss of consciousness. His airways patent. He has bilateral breath sounds, and he's setting 97%. His heart rate and blood pressure are within normal limits. 
On secondary survey, he has significant bruising and abrasions of the left flank and abdomen, and he's complaining of left chest pain as well as side pain, but he's not peritonitic on your exam. Your adjuncts include a chest x-ray, which shows some left-sided rib fractures, and a pelvic x-ray, which is negative. His fast was difficult, but you think there might be some small amount of fluid in the spleno-renal space, but at the end of the day, you call it equivocal. So, what are you doing? All right. Well, uh, given he is hemodynamically stable, no signs of peritonitis, there's no indication to run to the operating room immediately. Given the mechanism of injury, coupled with the fluid on fast, rib fractures, that's concerning for intra-abdominal injury. I'd want to get a CT scan to evaluate for these and other possible injuries. Of course, the mechanism also warrants imaging uh, of head, neck, chest, and not only the abdomen and pelvis. And getting the, uh, getting the CT, I'd probably want also to get a uh, delayed phase scan with the urogram expiratory phase which is a post-contract injection phase where it can show the optimal fitting of the collecting systems, the ureters, and we can make sure there's no injury to that area. Okay, so I actually have a question for you guys. Before you go to the CT scanner, what do you guys think of the need for placing a Foley prior to getting any imaging? That's a great question, Eva. Um, and I know that Yuri and I have chatted about this before and don't necessarily see eye to eye, so it'll be interesting to see what he says. I think for me, I think about um, blunt trauma based on regions and the geography of it. So even though the GU system, which has an upper and lower part, is one system, um, I sort of divide it into a pelvic area and an abdominal area. So based on the injuries that, uh, sorry, the history rather, that you've mentioned and your secondary survey findings, I'm worried, as Yuri is, about abdominal and flank injuries. And so the upper GU system, namely the kidneys and potentially the ureter, because of the history and the secondary survey, I'm not as worried about the pelvis. And because of that, I'm less worried about a bladder or urethral injury, for which it would be helpful to know if there's gross hematuria in order to do a retrograde urethrogram or a cystogram and other diagnostic maneuvers to determine whether or not there is a lower GU injury. So for me, in this patient, I would not necessarily delay CT scan for a Foley catheter. Yuri, what about you? What do you think? I agree. In this specific patient, I'm not sure that there is any indication for a Foley catheter. But if we are suspecting a kidney injury and macrohematuria might change our um, course of action, then I think that sometimes even when the injury is a, a flank or a right abdomen, this could be uh, important. If we have a patient who is uh, not as hemodynamically stable, we give him a unit of blood and we're not sure if we need to go to the OR, maybe there's a differential diagnosis of a kidney injury. Placing a Foley in the trauma bay can lead us to understand that there is more likely a kidney injury and then there's even a greater chance that uh, CT will guide us further. So in this hemodynamically stable patient, I'm not sure I'd put a Foley, but sometimes diagnosing the macrohematuria earlier could help us making uh, clinical decisions. Okay, that clarifies things a bit. Thanks, guys. Um, so, okay, going back to our scenario, we take our spring breaker to the CT scanner, and he is found to have no intracranial injuries. He has a small left hemothorax with left 9 through 12 rib fractures. 
He has a grade one splenic laceration with no active extravasation. And he has a left renal laceration extending through the renal cortex, medulla, and collecting system. But you see no blush on CT scan. Oh, that sounds like a doozy. How would you classify that, Eva? Or grade it, rather? There are a few ways to classify renal injuries, and most guidelines, including the American Neurological Association, use the AAST injury grade classification system. So the AAST injury, uh, kidney injury grades includes five different grades. Essentially, a grade one injury is a small contusion or small subcapsular hematoma. A grade two injury is a bigger hematoma or a small, meaning less than one centimeter laceration of the cortex with no urinary extrav. A grade three injury is a bigger laceration, so greater than one centimeter, again, of the cortex and again, without collecting system involvement. A grade four injury is a large laceration, and this involves the cortex, medulla, and collecting system, such as in our patient in the scenario. Or it could also be a vascular injury, like a renal artery or vein injury with a contained hematoma. And then finally, we have our grade five, and that would be a totally shattered kidney or an avulsion of the hilum with devascularization of the kidney. Very good. Yeah, so definitely this is a grade four injury um, that involves the uh, urinary system, but not necessarily the vascular system because there were no signs on CT, but still a grade four. So let's uh, start with this case and work through it. And then as we work through it, I'll change up uh, some of the details and we can learn a little bit more about uh, the nuances of renal trauma. So Eva, what would you do now with this patient with the grade four laceration? Yes, well, in this patient, he has a grade four injury with no active arterial extrav. He has no other abdominal injuries that would require a trip to the operating room. And he's also hemodynamically stable, which is key. So this all points to doing non-operative management for this patient. This is true for uh, almost any AAST grade injury, as long as the patient is hemodynamically stable, actually. So as long as he's hemodynamically stable, you would want to repeat your imaging for grade four or five lesions. Generally, it's at 48 hours is what's written in our guidelines. But honestly, this is a case-by-case -case basis, depending on how the patient's doing and any other concerns you might have. It should also happen sooner if you're concerned for any worsening condition in the patient. For example, if he has worsening pain, fevers, if he has continued blood loss while you're checking his H&H, or if he develops worsening flank pain, ileus, or distension. IR should definitely get involved if the imaging shows worsening urinoma or a fistula that would tell you that he will need a drainage procedure, such as a percutaneous urinoma drain or percutaneous nephrostomy tubes, et cetera. Yeah, very good. And, and you know, I think there's a lot of, um, as we mentioned, nuance here. So I think it's a little bit different on the grade fives to sit on that. You know, if we see a grade five spleen, that's going in the bucket. And it may be a little bit hard to imagine why would we sit on something like a grade four or five kidney, especially if it's involving the collecting system. I think the big difference here is gerotis fascia and the fact that the kidney is in a very enclosed space that really doesn't expand so much relative to the spleen or liver, which is in the entire abdomen. So you get a lot of things that tamponade off um, or won't really turn into big leaks or big problems. In addition, the collecting system uh, is pretty large once it starts going into the renal pelvis. So it can often be the path of least resistance, even if you have a small uh, peripheral urine leak. So that's why you don't always immediately chase those. But again, this requires clinical judgment. So if you're looking at a grade five and it's a huge urine leak, you may skip the plan of 
saying, well, I'm going to get a repeat CT in 48 hours and just call your IR colleagues now and say, hey, we need to drain the kidney and do that right away and start training the crits right away and have IR shoot an angio right away. That's totally reasonable. And that's what we mean by case by case basis. You know, ideally, we would have a lot of evidence to say what the actual variables and findings on CT scan are to direct you towards just straight non-operative management, non-operative management with a repeat scan in 48 hours or some sort of time interval, or going straight to IR for urinary drainage and or angioembolization. But the reality is, is we don't have those studies. And so a lot of this has asterisks or fine print that uh, you need to be aware of when you're dealing with renal trauma. All right. So bottom line, grade four with injury to the urinary system, but no extrav, we're going to non-operatively manage. And at some point considering involving IR for uh, urinary drainage and diversion. In general, it sounds like for these really smaller injuries, you can try and observe them and see if they resolve spontaneously. But I think in general, if there's a huge injury to the renal pelvis that you're suspecting, early diversion is probably the way to go. Hey everyone, it's John. If you're looking for more podcasts and move the health conversation forward, especially around timely topics like diversifying clinical trials. So what about angioembolization? When should we be calling IR for angioembolization? So that's got to be a change of scenario if we're going to call it an angio, because with the same injuries in a hemodynamically stable patient, the reason to call angio is usually when you have arterial contrast extravasation. And that, along with evidence of pseudoaneurysm or fistula, those are indications for a, for a patient to go to angio. Uh, but it's important to understand that all these CT scan findings must come on a hemodynamically stable patient. Because if the patient is deteriorating, then their place is not in the angio suite, but rather in the OR. So if the patient is hemodynamically stable and the injury is such that there could be an intervention done, then we can consider calling the IR team. But the easiest thing to do for me was to compare it or the, compare the renal injuries to the uh, splenic injuries. Again, uh, Rishi, you mentioned it. With splenic injuries, we have better and better evidence on which injuries can and should be treated endovascularly. With the kidney injuries, it's not as obvious. As you mentioned, most injuries, since the kidney is a closed space within the gerodus fascia, most injuries will be self-limiting. Yeah, Yuri, as you mentioned, we're extrapolating CT data in splenic injuries and liver injuries about pseudoaneurysm, fistula, or any other contrast extravasation to the kidney and using that as indications for um, kidney angioembolization. But one of the things that we're not extrapolating that is sort of unique to the kidney and has some low-grade, low-quality evidence behind it, so it's not entirely expert consensus, but certainly is not strong evidence, is that actually you can re-angio. So when you read a lot of the splenic trauma, liver trauma literature, if you angio an injury and then they re-bleed, that's a failure of non-operative management, and oftentimes those patients end up in the OR with a splenectomy, for example. But for the kidney, if they re-bleed and they're not completely hemodynamically unstable, it is reasonable to send them to angio again and see if you can recoil and re-embolize the injury and that's uh, a little bit unique to the kidney. Again, I think in large part because of the anatomy and location of the kidney in the enclosed space of the retroperitoneum within gerodus fascia. 
All right, so that was a lot of different options with different uh, grades of injury. But the bottom line is, regardless of grade or vascular urinary extravasation status, if a patient's stable, consider non-operative management, plus or minus IR for either angioembolization for contrast extrav or urinary diversion if there is a collecting system injury. The corollary is that if they're unstable, they should go to the OR. The exception here is the transient responder and only in a setting that has the infrastructure to abort an angioembolization attempt and rush to the OR if things go south in the IR suite. The general spirit, however, should be to avoid surgery for renal trauma unless really forced by unstable bleeding. All right, so it sounds like we've gotten down all the hemodynamically stable patients, but what about when it comes to the unstable patient that rolls into the trauma bay? Well, then operate. Uh, in such case, it's quite simple for me. It's opening the abdomen, doing a visceral rotation maneuver as quickly as possible, and getting higher control. And talking just a bit deeper into the uh, operative technique, so of course with the right nephrectomy, there's importance of clamping the vessels as lateral as possible as the cava is really close. What about zone 2 hematoma is just one of the problems? Rishi, how do you approach uh, such a patient? Yeah, that's a great question, Yuri. We only wish that real life were like the exam questions where it's just an isolated kidney injury, they're unstable, you go to the OR, you take the kidney out, you're done. The reality is, is that oftentimes uh, our patients are victims of severe high energy injuries and have polytrauma. So when you get into the abdomen uh, straight from the trauma bay because of hemodynamic instability, maybe a positive fast, you know, you pack the abdomen, maybe there's a spleen injury, a liver injury, some other intraperitoneal injuries, and then you also notice a zone two injury and you think, okay, well, the kidney's injured. We talk about seeing pulsatile or expanding hematomas. Certainly those uh, would really push you towards opening because those are unstable bleeding injuries. But a lot of times you'll go in and you'll see a soft non-pulsatile hematoma in zone two, but the patient is hemodynamically unstable. So what do you do? Do you open this and say, okay, well, this is a cause of hemodynamic instability. I need to take the kidney out or I need to explore and possibly repair the kidney? Or do you sort of let it be packed or tamponaded by gerotis fascia? And I think this is really a clinical judgment call. I do not think that we should be opening all those zone twos in the setting of hemodynamic instability. I wish I could tell you that there's an easy way to determine whether or not the kidney itself is the cause of hemodynamic instability, but I don't think that there's a hard and fast rule. What I do think there is, is clinical judgment and experience to say, you know, I don't really think that the kidney is causing this hemodynamic instability. I think it's in the abdomen. I think it's the spleen. I'm going to focus on that and leave the zone to uh, retroperitoneal hematoma alone. Uh, maybe I'll re-examine it post-splenectomy after a few minutes, see if it's stable or expanding, and then I'll have two data points to make the decision. But remember, gerotis fascia is pretty tight and pretty non-expansile. And so what that means is that it helps create tamponade around a kidney hematoma, which is why, as we've discussed, many uh, high-grade injuries to the kidney can still be managed non-operatively. Once you open gerotis, once you enter that kidney space, you've lost that tamponade and you've converted something that may have been able to be managed non-operatively to an uncontrolled, untamponaded hemorrhage. And very often that can turn into committing yourself to an nephrectomy. And, uh, you know, I think that doesn't always have to happen. 
So I wish, again, there were an easy answer to the question of a hemodynamically unstable patient with bleeding in the abdomen and retroperitoneum, what to do about a zone 2 hematoma. But again, I think the answer is, if you think that it's the cause of bleeding, you should go after it, realizing that as you open gerotas, you're very likely committing to a nephrectomy. On the other hand, if you think you can get away managing it non-operatively, even if it means staying in the OR a little bit longer to see the hematoma over time, and if it changes or not, um, then do that so that you can try to manage that non-operatively. One of the other reasons that you may want to try kidney preservation is if you realize that the, either intraoperatively or from CT scan that the patient has a solitary kidney or bilateral major kidney injuries such that you think both kidneys are totally boxed. One of the things that I will say is that, uh, you know, you'll read a lot in the books about um, kidney sparing surgery and trauma and nephrorephy, partial nephrectomy, and it's not always as easy as it looks. If you have a pretty minor polar injury, I have once or twice with pledgets repaired or salvaged the kidney while taking off a piece or really having the trauma take off a piece and just putting it in the bucket without really much dissection. But I can say that I've only done that a couple times. Usually if I'm opening gerotis fascia, the kidney is fairly significantly injured and it's gonna be really hard to suture. It's falling apart in your hands or there's not really much to repair. It's close to shattered, grade four or five. And uh, you know there's significant collecting and renal pelvis system injuries as well. So again, I, I do think it's important to note that if you're opening gerotis, certainly there are those fancy methods you read in the books, but I think the reality is when the patient's unstable, on the table, and you think it's uh, the retroperitoneum and you're opening it, usually you should be thinking about nephrectomy. That said, that's sort of in the blunt scenario. But, you know, I think that the, the conventional wisdom is changing with how to manage penetrating injuries. If you read the books and the way I was trained, all zone twos that are due to a penetrating injury require exploration. But I'm not sure that's really the case anymore, uh, both in theory and in practice. Yuri, what do you think? What are your thoughts about it? What are you doing out in practice in Tel Aviv? So, you know, especially where uh, you get the stab or gunshot wounds that you did get a pre-op scan because the patient was stable and you were suspecting a tangential injury. And now the one thing you see is a, a polar injury, a lateral injury. That's definitely described that the patient may be better if you just leave it alone. Less complications than if you explore the kidney. And if you get dropping a crit or a urinoma, these could be managed percutaneously. If it's a uh, extravasation, arterial extravasation, IR consult can be placed and uh, embolization, selective embolizations are possible in experienced hands. Of course, there's the thing where you have penetrating injury and the patient needs to go to the OR, then a zone 2 hematoma is another thing you discovered during surgery. Formal teaching would say it mandates exploration. I'd, I'd like to hear your uh, opinion and experience about uh, is the possibility of not exploring a zone 2 hematoma for penetrating injuries where you're already in the OR. And for me, I know that while that's not formal teaching, I know that it's not blasphemy. I've seen people do this, and I actually also did myself a couple of times. Uh, you know, the hematoma was small, lateral, and I was consulting my superiors, and I actually left a couple of those alone. Um, what do you think? Is is the, Does it mandate for you uh, exploration in the OR? 
Yeah, great question. And and I agree. I think that the conventional wisdom here and the practice, at least in the U.S., and it sounds like Israel, is changing. It's in the process of changing. And I think it really is uh, it really is a philosophy of common sense over dogma. And if you think it through, if you're in the OR and you see a penetrating injury to zone two and you follow the tract of a bullet or a knife and you see that it's just tangentially involving the kidney, maybe just getting a pull, superior, inferior, just the lateral edge, and then moving more obliquely laterally, then you know that that tract is not really headed towards the renal pelvis, the renal hilum, the ureter. And so I don't think that you gain much from from exploring that, from potentially devascularizing the ureter, from causing another potential injury, from diverting your attention away from another bleeding organ in the case of polytrauma. So absolutely, if I feel like the tract is avoiding the renal hilum or the ureter region, I will not formally explore in the entirety of zone two. So what that what I mean by that is maybe I'll start opening and realize, okay, in the superior pole, I've seen it, it's well controlled, I'm not going further. Perhaps even more provocative is I may not even touch it at all. If I am looking at the retroperitoneal zone two and I can feel confident based on the tract, even though there's overlying hematoma, which is not always the case, but in the cases in which I can feel confident that I know the tract and it's not involving the hilum or ureter area, um, then I will. I may not open, absolutely may not open and let it stay, let your rotus stay there to tamponade whatever hematoma may exist and manage any potential urine leak expectantly and non-operatively without getting into gerotas. I think this is a little bit similar to the way we're starting to treat tangential right upper quadrant penetrating wounds to the liver. When we know all that it's involving is the liver, we may manage those non-operatively. And again, there's increasing data that this is safe to do, Um, not high level evidence per se, but um, it is growing. The literature around this is growing. And I think similarly, approaching the kidney and uh, the retroperitoneal zone too, with that same amount of kind of common sense and, and clinical intuition, I think is important. Certainly, you do not want to miss the effect of blast injury. So most of us in the civilian setting are seeing low energy penetrating injuries. We're seeing stab wounds and low um, velocity missiles. If you are in a setting where you're seeing high energy that has a large cavitation and blast force, that can affect the surrounding tissue, I don't know that this applies. It's pretty uncommon in the civilian setting, but for those in uh, conflict settings, I would still stick to the more standard teaching of exploration to make sure that you're not missing some sort of blast injury. But for the lower energy penetrating, again, stabbing and civilian, most civilian firearm injuries, I think you can avoid having to um, dogmatically, formally explore every zone two retroperitoneal hematoma. There it is. We said it. (laughs) I'm not sure I would say it on a board uh, exam, but I think experience definitely taught me that it is possible. All right. So I think we've gone through quite a bit of scenarios. So we talked about the non-operative management of the hemodynamically stable patient. We talked about what to do if you're concerned about a urinary leak. We talked about when to call IR. Uh, We talked about when to go to the operating room with the hemodynamically unstable patient. And we also touched on some penetrating injuries. So thank you guys for um, helping us walk through those scenarios. 
at this point, I think it's time for us to go through our quick hits just to summarize everything we went through. I know, I know it was a lot of information. So without further ado, our quick hits. So number one, most kidney injuries or the vast majority can be managed non-operatively. Number two, for pretty much all AAST grades of injury, the choice to go to the OR immediately lies in whether the patient is stable or unstable. Number three, if there is a urinary leak seen on imaging and it's small, it can usually just be observed and followed with repeat imaging on a case-by-case basis to determine the need for drainage. Unless the injury was significant or if there is injury to the renal pelvis, then the patient should usually go for a drainage procedure with IR. Number four, consider IR in any stable patient found to have active extravasation, fistula, or pseudoaneurysm. Number five, in the case of an unstable patient, except for very rare circumstances, you should be going to the operating room. Number six, if you're going to the operating room and you find that there's another possible cause of instability, address that first. If you're going to be opening gerotus fascia, be prepared to commit to a nephrectomy. And finally, number seven, in penetrating injury, to explore or not explore is the million-dollar question. Formal teaching is that it requires mandatory exploration. However, real-world experience shows that in select cases like that of tangential injuries or small peripheral hematomas, sometimes they can be left alone. And with that, guys, this is actually going to be our last episode as the current Miami trauma team for Behind the Knife. We've had a great time making this content for you. We hope you've enjoyed them. We hope you've learned a little something about trauma from listening to our episodes. And we thank you so very much for listening. We've had a blast doing it the last two years. And with that, we're going to sign off for the final time. Continue dominating the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.